I mean, man, that makes me feel Christmas. It's so peaceful, right? The la- if you've been here with us, the last uh, sermon bumper we did ended with this like amazing C chord, G chord, kind of like this. And this one is just peaceful with a little twink. So nice, so nice. Hey, thanks for being here. Thanks, uh, like Brandon said, if you're online. And I appreciate what Brandon said about the, the code in front of you. One of the things that's really been cool the past uh, probably four or five weeks is that every Sunday, it seems, in this service, we have at least one or two new individuals or new families who, for whatever reason, are kind of checking us out. And we've realized that we need to make sure we're doing a great job adapting. And since we don't hand out bulletins or don't have hard copies of things, we need to make sure we're providing to you, if you want to know more, if you're new, a way to do that. Or even if you're not, as our ministries are, a lot of them continuing and starting to look to build and do some new things in the, in the wintertime. Uh, again, if you're here every week, if you want to just know about, hey, I would love prayer, I'd love to be baptized, I want to know about the membership or just a, kind of a Calvary 101 class, uh, that code in front of you will be a way to get you to that form that you can give us that information. So we're excited um, about that. So uh, it works. I tested it the first service. I snuck in during the first song and I tried it. So don't take a picture of it. That won't work. Just hold your camera up to it. Um, and one more quick housekeeping thing and then we're going to jump into our message. If you were here last week or if you're a kind of a regular part of our church family, you've heard from Kevin Courtney and then you received a, a letter this week from our elders just informing you with transparency about where God has us financially in this season. And just want to let you know one kind of housekeeping thing about uh, our elder team. Uh, there's been a gentleman named Seth Parrish, who's one of our elders right now and been serving in that capacity for a couple of years. And he and his wife, Robin, have served in a bunch of different ways here at Calvary. They've been part of our student ministry, been involved in a community group. Seth taught a bunch of our adult classes, now as an elder. And Seth and his family have a great opportunity in Mississippi and so they will be leaving, uh, you know, they'll be transitioning down there in the beginning of the year. He is going to a place where he won't have to shovel two feet of snow on Wednesday. Um, but we just want to let you know that. We didn't want you to wake up one morning and see one less elder. If you're visiting our elders, kind of the spiritual leadership board, and if you know Seth, man, I'd just love for you to be able to thank him for his service and his role to church, and we're grateful for what he and Rob and his family have done uh, for us. And we're grateful for another chance to press into God's Word and think about hope this season. And so I'm going to do what I do every Sunday. I'm going to pray for God's work because um, maybe I do okay telling a ridiculous story, but what I do know is uh, there's no power in anything I say to change lives. The power comes from the Lord choosing to work in your heart and my heart throughout the sermon. And so we're excited and grateful for the opportunity to ask Him to do that. And so I'm going to do that right now. Father, Thank you for the songs we've already sing, sung. Thank you for the great reminder about what part of what Jesus offers, uh, the, the hope that one day really all oppression will cease. Um, <clears throat> and we look forward to that. And thank you for the time to come together now, Father, and open up your word. And we want to know more about what the word says. We want to know how that impacts our lives. We're here to celebrate Jesus and think about him and who he is and what he's done. And so with the Holy Spirit, help us to do that well, Father, um, and I'm just grateful that there's no power from anybody who, who gives a sermon, Father, but the power comes from your spirit, and so work in your word for your purposes. You're sovereign. You know why we're all here this morning, and you have a plan for us, and so we come expectantly and are grateful, and we want Jesus to be honored. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, by now, probably most of you have started to listen to Christmas music already, right? On your Spotify, in your car, maybe you got some CDs still. 
whatever. No judgment here at Calvary, right? Maybe you got some CDs. We, we, we have a rule in my family. I'm, I'm very legalistic about this. Not legalistic about a whole lot, but my rule in my family is we cannot listen to one chord of Christmas music until Thanksgiving's done, right? When we got that turkey carcass and we're pulling off the, the, the meat for turkey sandwiches, at that point, we can then start playing Christmas tunes but this year, I totally threw that rule out the window, right? I'm like, I've had so, I'm done, I need some Christmas joy in my life. I can't handle this pandemic. So we started listening to Christmas music uh, super early. Probably by now, you've listened to Christmas music yourself. And if you have, you've heard among the different rotation of songs, you've probably heard Silent Night at least a time or two by now. If you haven't heard Silent Night, look at how I make this plug. You'll be able to hear it at one of our two Christmas Eve services, and we'd love for you to come to that because we're going to sing it like we sing every year, but you've probably heard by now Silent Night. And, and there's something interesting about that song, right? It, whether it's the words or whether it's just the melody or whether it's the tempo of it, that song kind of does a great job just highlighting and capturing what I think is, is unique about the Christmas season because in a unique way this time of year what that the, what we realize is there can be something very peaceful and something very fulfilling and something very meaningful about silence about silence we're supposed to get a bunch of snow later this week who knows it'll come or not but one of the things that i love in wintertime is it's been snowing for a few hours, and now it's 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, and you know you got to go up and shovel snow. So I go outside, and I'm like, okay, i got to figure out, do I need a snow blow? How bad is it? And it's 1045, 11 o'clock at night, and the stars are up there, and they're snowing, and there's just not a sound. No traffic, no cars. It's just quiet and peaceful and silent. Maybe for some of you that comes where it's been a chaotic day watching your grandkids or watching your kids and they're finally in bed and they're finally quiet and they've stopped asking for one more drink or another story or whatever it is and it's later and you just have a few moments to exhale and sit down and you sit on your couch by your Christmas tree and the house is quiet and it's silent and it's peaceful. There's something this time of year that highlights how silence can be so nice and so meaningful and so endearing. But th there's a flip side to that, too, because silence is a weird thing. It can certainly be meaningful. But you know what? Sometimes in life, silence can also be hard. Silence can create loneliness. Maybe there's some of you and you live alone. Maybe there's been a change in your circumstances in life, and your house is silent. And it's way too silent. And it makes you feel lonely. Silence from friends. When they don't call to check on us or they don't see how we're doing or we don't hear from people for a while, that silence can start to cause within us this sensation, this thought that people don't care for us. Silent night describes the event on the night when Jesus was born. And to be honest, I think it's kind of a misnamed song because I'm really not so sure how a baby being birthed with a bunch of animals around would really be that silent of a moment, right? But Silent Night is actually kind of an ironic song because the events that are described in that song, what was going on in that moment was actually God breaking silence. 
Because up to that point, there had been silence for hundreds and hundreds of years. And in that moment, on that night, it was anything but silent. It was God crashing through to his people once again to reveal to them who he was and something about himself. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to think about this. We're going to think about this page right here in my Bible. Because this page right here in my Bible, here is the last part of the Old Testament. And here's a little title page that says New Testament. This page in my Bible separates the two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But you know what? This blank page represents a whole lot of silence in the story of the Jewish people. Silence. And so what we're going to think about is, okay, before this page, before silence, what happened in this moment leading up to it? And then we're going to think about what happened during the silence, and then we'll spend some time thinking about how did God break the silence. So let's do this. Let's think about before this page in my Bible, right, before the silence came, what happened before the silence? Well, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, and the Old Testament is not arranged chronologically, but, but Malachi kind of is the last thing um, that that was said to the Jewish people. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at three kind of key verses in the book of Malachi that explain to us and set the stage for what's going on in this book and what's happening in the Jewish people's lives before a bunch of silence comes and hits. We did a sermon series through the book of Malachi a couple, two, three years ago. We're not going to do that again right now, but three key verses to kind of summarize what's going on in the book. The first one is chapter one, verse one, where it says this. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Here's what's going on. God has some things that he wants to tell his people. He wants to remind his Jewish people of things. He wants to tell his people things. And he's doing that through a prophet who's named Malachi. Malachi is delivering this message. And the second kind of key big verse in this book gives us an understanding of what that message is. The second key verse is found in verse, in chapter 3, verse 7 of Malachi, where it says this. And here's the context that the Jewish people are in. And we'll walk all through this in this new sermon series we're doing starting in January out of the walking through the Old Testament. But the Jewish people, God got them out of slavery. They got into their land. And over time, they had certain kings. There were good kings. There were bad kings. But there was this pattern of sin that happened. And so as a consequence for their sin, what God allowed was these other countries to come and to wipe them out, to conquer the land of Israel. When those other countries conquered the land of Israel, they took a ton of the people as prisoners of war back to Babylon. They were there for a while. New leaders came. The people were finally allowed to come back to Jerusalem, come back to Israel. The people jumped into the land, and they wanted to worship God again. And so they started building the temple. But after a couple you know, weeks, months of building the temple, you know what they thought? They thought, ah, man, I, I, got better, I got better things to do. Like, it's okay rebuilding this temple, but I mean, my grass needs cut. I got to get a new job. My ca-. And they, they became complacent. And they stopped prioritizing worship, and they stopped rebuilding the temple. And then they, God kind of brought more prophets to like get back on it, and so they rebuilt this wall, they rebuilt the temple, they finally had it done. They made all sorts of promises after that temple was done. And they said, God, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this for you, we're going to do this for you, we're going to do that for you. We'll never do this, we'll never do this, we'll never do this. As soon as they said those things, they walked out of the door of that worship service, and you know what? Everything they said they'd never do, they did. And everything they said they would do, they wouldn't do. And that's not because necessarily they're bad people. That's because that's in all of our story. 
All of us have done that. God, we won't. God, we will. But because we're still sinful people waiting to be fully redeemed by Jesus, we stumble and we fall and they stumbled and they fell. And so God sent more prophets and then God sent Malachi kind of as this last prophet. And here's what he's saying to them, this second big key verse. From the days, verse 7, of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and you have not kept them. Return to me. He comes to them and says, Jewish people, we've had this story together and it's been ups and downs, but right now you're in this place where you've turned aside from what I want you to do. Return to me. Come back to me. How had they turned aside? What was going on in their scenario? Well, again, if you want to know more about it, we got the sermon on the archives. But, but here's how they turned in that moment. There's kind of six key things that they'd done wrong. The biggest overarching problem was their heart. That they just prioritized things other than God, and they found that other things would satisfy them, and that misaligned prioritization in their heart had led to all sorts of problems. The first problem that's specifically going on in this moment in Malachi is these people doubted God's love. They just kind of looked around at their past, they looked at their problems now, and they're like, I mean, I don't think God loves us. Second big problem was the priests, the spiritual leaders. They had a good, cushy job, and they were just going through the motions. They had sin in their own lives. They weren't shepherding the people. Third big problem is the Jewish people were marrying the wrong people. They were divorcing people they shouldn't be divorcing. They thought evil was okay. There's all these things that God said don't do, and they're like, we're going to do that. Fifth big thing is that God says, you're robbing me, because he'd given certain resources to them that they weren't putting back into his work, and they were prioritizing using it for themselves. And they were arrogant and self-sufficient. That was their story in that moment, and in that moment, what God says to them in their story is, guys, you've turned aside from me return to me. And God tells them, if you choose not to return to me, there's going to be judgment that comes. There's going to be punishment. There's going to be consequences for your choices. But that wasn't the final word from God because there's one more key verse. And the one more key verse is found in verse 2, where after walking through all that they're doing wrong, telling them there's going to be consequences, God says this in chapter 4, verse 2, but... It's always good. 99% of the time when something says, but God, right, or but in the Bible, it is about to be something good, right? And here's what it says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Throughout this whole story, throughout their story now, like Dan's mentioned, I mentioned last week, the Jews have been longing for this king, for this leader to come make it right. And at the end of this, the final key verse, God says this, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. What commentators are settled on is this is another reference to that king who's coming. That person who's coming, we know it refers to the Messiah because John the Baptist's daddy says it refers to the Messiah. God says to the people, turn to me, there'll be punishment. But one day, someday, this person's going to come who's going to make it right, who's going to bring healing. And then there's a few more sentences, and then there's a period. And then there's 
silence. Silence. And this page represents over 400 years of God's silence. Was God still sovereign? Yes. Was God still in charge? Yes. Was he revealing himself to his people? No. Was he giving his people any messages? Not that we have recorded. Were there any angels showing up with trumpets? No. Silence. Day after day, month after month, year after year, century after century after century after century. For longer than the United States has been around, the people heard nothing else from God but silence. Now, maybe you haven't been struggling with silence in your life in terms of God for 400 years. Well, I know you're not because ain't none of you 400 years old. But maybe for some of you, when silence of God, you, you got it. Because for the past four weeks, or maybe four months, maybe that's been part of your story. You're waiting for something. You're asking for something. You're trying to figure out something. You're trying to get guidance from something. You just want God to show up and to speak. Does he speak in his word? Yes, of course. But you're trying to get wisdom and pure guidance from the Holy Spirit about what to do. And you're praying and crickets. Have you ever been there? Stuff going on. You're trying to put it into perspective. You're trying to figure it out. And man, God's just quiet. I go through that. And when I go through that, and what I would encourage you to do is I realize it's not unique to my story, it's not unique to your story, because the writers of the Psalms, as they were inspired by God to write that poetry or write those worship songs to God, you know what a vast majority of those Psalms talk about? They talk about how they're waiting. And they're yearning for God, and they're thirsty for God, and they're before God, and they just want God to show up but he's silent. And a great takeaway for me out of that and a great takeaway for you is what those guys committed themselves to do as they were waiting amidst the silence of God as they committed that they were going to wait well. And so this morning, if you're going through a moment of silence in God, if you're just waiting on him, and he seems like he's, I love this line out of a song written by somebody who says, it seems like God's playing hard to get. I'd encourage you and I'd challenge you, keep waiting, but wait well. What made the silence even more challenging for the Jewish people wasn't just that God wasn't speaking to them or revealing himself to them. What made it challenging for them is what they experienced during this moment, right? What they went through, what happened in their culture, and what happened in their lives. So kind of a little bit of teaching here for a minute, but I want you to understand the backstory into which Jesus was born. Here's what was happening in this page in these 400 years for the Jewish people. When the last period was put in the dot of Malachi, and I know that the Hebrew doesn't actually have periods, I get that, but speaking metaphorically, right? When, when, when Malachi then went silent, 
The Persians were in charge of the Jewish people, but pretty soon after that, the Greeks rolled into town. You may have heard of a dude, Alexander the Great, right? Why can't I be called Peter the Great? There was a Peter the Great. It wasn't me. <clears throat> Alexander the Great rolls into town, and he conquers the Persians, and the Greeks are in charge. After Alexander the Great's death, there's this political infighting, and every Greek leader after Greek leader are fighting for who's the real emperor, who's going to take over, and the Jews were like in the washing machine of all that political turmoil. One leader would come over, another leader would come over, they're just getting tossed and turned and tossed and turned as the years go by, as the decades go by, as this pattern goes by. There's one Greek emperor who takes control, who does everything he can to try to crush the Jewish people. He was hostile towards their faith. He wanted to just silence them once and for all. And so what this one particular Greek leader did, as these Jews were experiencing God's silence and were in different degrees of trying to obey and live well as they were yearning for this son of righteousness, this king who was going to come with healing to fix the oppression. What this one Greek leader did is he rolled into the holy city, which was Jerusalem, and he rolled into that holy city on the holy day, which was their Sabbath. And there were some Jews who were worshiping, and he slaughtered them. And then he imposed in the days to come all sorts of bans on the Jewish religion. He banned their worship. He prohibited circumcision, which is a big piece of their religious tradition and symbolism. <clears throat> he banned the Sabbath observance. The Jews were kosher. They had kosher laws, and he banned complying with that law. And then to stick it to them even further, he went into the temple, and in the temple was this, there's this holy areas where in the past the presence of God had dwelt, and the people would have to come to worship God there. And in order to just, just stick it to him and wear him down, he put up this big statue of Zeus, a Greek god. And then to really rub it in. For the Jews, pork, pigs were completely unclean. And the Old Testament says everything about staying away from pork and for pigs for a variety of reasons. But, but there was this altar in the middle of the temple where the Jewish people throughout history would have been offering sacrifices to God. And this one Greek leader came and he took a big old pig and he slaughtered it there in the holy place and he threw it on this altar, this unclean animal which was one of the things that Jews have done everything to avoid and, and burnt that there on the altar, just trying to destroy with a little bit of hope, with a little bit of confidence they had. The Jews then did what we've seen people do over the past few years when there's trouble in a land and countries start to devolve. What you and I have seen is this immigration crisis and refugees, and the Jews then became refugees. And some of the Jews stuck around and ended up getting killed, but most of the Jews are like, okay, we can't hang out here anymore. we got to get out of here. So they went to all sorts of other countries around. They went to Egypt. They went everywhere, separated away from Jerusalem. Some Jews are like, no, we're not going to run. We're going to stay here and fight. And so as the centuries went on, there was this group called Maccabees. They were trying to stick it to the Greeks and fighting. This, most scholars think, is when this idea of synagogues developed. You may have heard and know in the New Testament, Jesus goes into a synagogue a bunch to teach. Well, most scholars think it developed after the Jews left Jerusalem. They went to all sorts of other countries, and they couldn't go back to the temple to worship because the temple has Zeus, the temple has pig blood. And so now that they're in Egypt or wherever they are, they'd get this little religious assembly together. And those birthed this synagogue notion. There was this 
religious law that passed. If 10 Jewish men were together in one city, they could form a synagogue. And so these separate houses and places of worship started to develop all throughout that region and the world. The Pharisees were the ones who started to build the power of the people that Jesus had conflict with and started to rise to power. And in this whole moment, as they've now left their hometown, as the temple's been desecrated and there's this pig being sacrificed for there, as the Greeks are trying to stick it to them, Rome conquers the Greeks, and that's a whole new level of problems for the Jews. They've had to spread out, nothing's the same, they don't have any stability, and the big elephant in the room for those people is where is this king? Where is this guy who's going to show up? Because my grandma's, 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 says that God said something about this guy coming, but he doesn't seem to be here. And what's God doing? And why are these circumstances in this road tangling and twisting? Why does God seem absent? Why does God seem silent? Why isn't God doing anything in this moment? And maybe for some of you in your own story, that's kind of the elephant in the room for you. Because there's circumstances that you're facing. And you're like, where's God? There's curveballs that have come. There's steps you've taken. It seems like the ground is cratered under you. And the elephant in the room are all the unknowns about why and where is God. Because there's all sorts of promises from God, but you're just not experiencing them. We say this a lot. The problem is the Bible doesn't always answer all those whys, and in fact, it typically tends not to answer all those whys. But in those 400 years of silence, like I said before, had God taken a sabbatical from his sovereignty? No, he hadn't. Was he still over everything? He was. Did he still love his people? He did, but for some reason, he was silent. But then, one day, one unexpected day, an old priest, a couple of years away from retirement, in a no-name town, backwoods city that nobody cared about, went to work just like another day. And after 400 plus years. On that day, God broke his silence and appeared to him and revealed some truth to him. The revelation started to continue because a short while after that, there was this teenage girl, there was this middle schooler who wasn't married, who had a baby. And God broke his silence and appeared to her through an angel and then appeared to the guy she would eventually end up marrying. And then after over 400 years, God completely breaks through and shatters the silence in a way that wasn't expected, in a new revelation that had never been happened before, right? After 400 years of nothing, God smashes the cone of silence and shows up to reveal himself in a new way. What's that new way of, of revelation? The new way of that is what we celebrate, what happened on Christmas Eve. We read about it in John, the biographer of Jesus named John. John 1, chapter 1, verse 1 says this, and you're going to hear the word, word, which refers to the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Now, here's what that refers to, what Christians believe is that God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is saying that the Son, the member of the Trinity, the Son, has always been in existence. But the triune God chooses to reveal himself in a way that's never been revealed before. And we read about what the Son does in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. After 400 plus years of silence, after 400 plus years of the elephant in the room, where is God? God, the triune God, chooses to make himself known by taking on flesh. Interesting, there's lots of different words for flesh in the Greek. That word that's used here for flesh, it's the most common form. The most common form. To suggest it's not elegant, but took on flesh humbly. And then what did he do? He dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. Within that word for dwell is the word that refers back to the tabernacle. Because in the Old Testament, part of where God dwelt was first in this tent, in this tabernacle. Dwelt here literally means to reside in a tent. And it used to be if you wanted to be with God, you had to go to this tabernacle or you had to go to this, this temple that built out of it. And now what it's saying is, no, 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 the game's changed. And you don't have to go somewhere to be in the presence of God because God himself has come to where we are. And he didn't just come for a day. He didn't just swoop down and check it out. For 33 years, the son took on flesh, fully God, fully man, 100% God, 100% man, big fancy words, hypostatic union, Chalcedon Creed. We could talk about that more later. Theologically, this is referred to as the incarnation. The incarnation to reveal himself to us as us without sin. Now, the question becomes, that's rich theologically, but practically, for you and me this morning, what, what takeaways do we have? What, what does that mean for us practically as we navigate and find ourselves in a moment that we find ourselves in? We're, well, it means a few things. And the first thing it means is this, that because of Jesus coming to where we were, Jesus totally changed the whole rules regarding worship. And we can now directly access and worship God anytime and anywhere. Back in the day before Jesus, like I said, you went to the tabernacle, you went to the temple. When you went to that place, it was worship was limited to that location. And when you went there, you had to go through a priest. When Jesus came to tabernacle with us, all of that was done away with. And the reality is this now, you and I can have direct access and we can worship God anytime and anywhere. No matter where you are, whatever you are, however you are, you have the ability to come directly to the God of the universe and have access. This morning, you have the ability to have direct, pretend you're not in church. I do this every like six months because I think what happens is some of us are in church so much, we're like, yeah, 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 no, hold on, listen. This morning, 
no matter what's going on in your life. No matter what's gone on in your life. You don't have to get in an Uber and drive 100 miles to another city to go talk to a priest to worship God. You have direct access to the God of the universe today and now and here. And you can worship him. What's the second benefit of the incarnation? Second benefit of Jesus coming to where we are is this. We have an additional way to know what God is like by looking at Jesus. That's what John continues to tell us in verse 18. He says this. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. What that's saying is that when the Son took on flesh in the person of Jesus, part of what Jesus does is allow us to know what the triune God is like. Throughout the Old Testament, there's lots of stories and there's poetry and there's prophetic things. In the New Testament, there's a lot of letters written to churches to answer questions, all of which helps us understand what the triune God is like. But in addition to those things, you know what we also now have? We have a person who is fully God and fully man, that we can look at to understand what the triune God is like. If you want to know what the triune God thinks about people, if you want to know what the heart and the attitude and the perspective of the triune God is to people in our world and people in our culture who are overlooked by so many people, If you want to know what the triune God thinks about the disenfranchised, if you want to know what the triune God thinks about the person who has all this sin in their life, who'll think that they'll never be good enough for God and there's no chance they can ever be right with God, if you want to know what the triune God thinks about that, you know what you can look at? You can see what Jesus thinks about those people. You can see how Jesus interacted with those people. You can see how Jesus stopped and looked at and interacted with, and drew to himself countless number of people who were overlooked by all the people around them, particularly overlooked by all the churchy people around them. What Jesus gives us is another layer to understand what God is like. If you want to know if the triune God loves you, look at how Jesus loved people. And it adds a dimension to that third benefit from this incarnation, the third benefit from the reason we can have hope because God broke his silence and the manner in which God broke his silence is this. Because he was man and fully God, Jesus can relate to what you're going through. Jesus can relate to what you're going through. We see this in Hebrews 4. It it uses language to refer to Jesus as the high priest, and this is what it says. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus knew what it was like to be wrongly accused of something. 
Jesus knew what it was like to have things shift underneath him. Jesus knew what it was like in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's arrested. He knows and he can tell what God's plan is. And this is hard to understand, but there's part of him that's like, I don't want to go through that plan. Jesus knows what it's like to not want to walk a road that God has before him to walk. Jesus knows what it's like to have people let him down. He knows what it's like to have family fail to rally around him and think he's crazy. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be alone and to be sad. He knows what it's like to be tempted. Doesn't know what it's like to sin or everything associated with that. But, but here's why that's significant because maybe some of you this morning are having some of those feelings. Maybe some of you this morning have friends who have let you down. Or maybe some of you this morning are struggling because you feel like, well, I'm, I'm being accused of something that's not fair, that's not right. They don't know the whole story. I feel like I can't defend myself. Maybe some of you this morning, you see the road that God is for you, and you're thinking to yourself, Lord, if there's any way to let this cup pass from me, I don't, I don't really want to walk this path. Can we have like a last-minute audible? Maybe some of you know what it's like to have a family situation where it's not the ideal situation, and maybe they think, you're crazy. Maybe some of you know what it's like to be alone. And here's the reality, that because Jesus became man, he's been there. That's what the Bible says. And he knows what you're going through. There's this whole other one that we don't have time to go into. It's a sermon of self, but, but, the, but the way that Jesus chose to come rescue us is this model of what we should do, this incarnational ministry. Jesus came to where we were, right, to to get to us. He didn't force us to come to him. He came, he left, he went, which is this huge model that I wish we had more time to unpack. If you know what we're supposed to do, Jesus went to where the people were who most desperately needed him. And guess what? That's what we're supposed to do. And way too many times in Christianity, I think what we do is we say, well, hey, hey, we're here. We're at 498 White Plains Road. We got some chairs open. And if they want to come, they can come here. That's not what Jesus did. What Jesus did is he went there. Right in the heart to people who most desperately need him. And that's where he lived. That's what we got to do. It's another sermon for another day. The last benefit we have from this, uh, that everyone and anyone can become part of God's family. Anyone and anyone, everyone can become part of God's family. Verse 12, it says this, telling about what Jesus did. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. It means that this morning... That for you and for I, we have the opportunity, and some, a lot of us are, to remember the fact that we're God's children. Right? We're, we're part of God's children. We've become children of God, and the, the means we've done that is through belief in Jesus, belief that he was our substitute and he died for our sins. Now, this morning, as the worship team comes out, we're going to have the opportunity to, to remember that through communion. I need the opportunity to grab a cup on your way in. And it's really interesting. You know what? You and I, this morning, we find ourselves waiting. 
We find ourselves waiting for something. And what you and I are waiting for is the moment when Jesus will come back again. I love what Advent really is. I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not always, I, well, I'm not lying to you. Advent is not remembering when Jesus came the first time. What Advent is about is looking to Jesus coming the second time. And we look back to his first coming to give us confidence that he will come again in this morning. If you're forgiven, you know what? We're all on this deal looking forward to when Jesus comes back. And we're looking forward to coming when Jesus comes back as children of God. And you know what children are? Besides sometimes being little minions, they're trusting. They're trusting. They trust their dad. I I remember, man, growing up, going back to the 70s, We'd go to church in Norwalk, Connecticut every Sunday night. I was, I don't know what age, six, five, six years old. And we'd go to church on Sunday nights. And then after church, I'd try my best lawyering skills, and I'd try to convince my parents to go out to Friendly's. Some of you may remember Friendly's. I want to go out and get a cup of, man, let's get a hot fudge Sunday if you love it. Right? So sometimes we'd go out to Friendly's. Then we'd have about a 35-minute ride home. And in the ride home back to, from Norwalk to where we lived, as this little kid, I would fall asleep in the car. And then you know what happened as a little five, six-year-old? When I got home, <clears throat> my dad would come. He'd reach in, he'd unbuckle that car seat, he'd pick me up, and he'd walk me up to the house, into my room, where I'd be safe in my bed. It was not one Sunday night that, that in my little fog of, oh, dad's carrying me in, that I ever, ever, ever worried about my dad dropping me on the concrete. Because he knew why. Because I trusted him. I knew that he loved me. I knew that he had me. And then one day I became a dad. <clears throat> my kids are too old. I mean, I could still pick them up. But I don't pick them up out of their car seats now, but you know what? When they were five and six years old, I did. And I'd take them out of their car seats, and I'd hold them close on my shoulder, and I'd hold them tight, and I'd walk out of the car into their room, and I'd lay them down. And there was never one moment that I was ever going to drop them on the concrete. You know why? Because I loved them. This morning, in the same way that fathers love their kids in those moments, Your heavenly Father loves you. And this morning, He's holding you close. And He's walking you somewhere. And He's got you. And you don't have to worry for a moment. He's going to drop you on the concrete. Because that's not the heart of the Father, it's the heart of love. And so I don't know what you're going through. But man, you got a father who loves you, who is holding you, whether you're seven or 70, who is committed to carrying you safely home. We're just a bunch of kids who are trusting our dad. And maybe for some of you, you're here and you're not a child of God. Maybe you're not a child of God, but you've been to Calvary for 20 years. But man, you know what? You've just, you've just done a really good job of playing church. 
Playing church doesn't get you anywhere. Faith and belief. When you have the opportunity today to have confidence, if you've never had it before, that, man, your sins can be forgiven. And that you can be right with God and you can have hope because God broke the silence and will never let you go. So this morning, if you're in God's family, if you believe that about Jesus, you know what we're going to remind ourselves of? We're going to remind ourselves of this. We're waiting to see God one day. But until that day, you and I together, we wait as kids, safe in our Father's arms. So I'd invite you with me to peel off the top part of this cup and take the bread that represents the body of Jesus and remind yourself that you're his child because of what Jesus did for you. Let's take and eat together. Then I invite you to peel off a little more and together we're going to take some juice which represents the body of Jesus, the flesh that he took on, which was eventually pierced for you and I, so that we could have hope, so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could have peace. And together, until we see our dad, let's take and drink.